going to be in John chapter 4 today, if you have your Bible in our Bible study time. Pull out your Bibles. If you don't have one, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can have or use today. Just wave at them as they come down. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands so you could follow along, and you can keep it if you don't have one. And make sure and pull the notes out of your bulletin so that you can follow along um, as we dig into week number five of a series that we're calling Follow. It's our goal this year that we would learn how to follow Jesus better in 2016 than we've ever followed Jesus before. That this would be a year of real depth and maturity in our faith and that this year we would say, hey, I'm going to do better this year. Uh, I'm going to follow Jesus a little closer. I'm going to walk a little deeper. I'm going to read my Bible a little more. I'm I'm going to stop doing that a little more this year. I'm going to follow closer to Jesus. And as we've talked about following, we've said, let's do this. As we go through 2016, let's go from having a moment with Jesus where, hey, there was a time in my life where I really connected Jesus uh, to Jesus big time, to living on mission with Jesus, where every day I get up and I want to live for Jesus. Let's this year go from believing in Jesus. Yeah, I know who Jesus is. I understand what he did for me to becoming like Jesus. Let's figure out what in our life doesn't look like Jesus and figure out how to become more like Jesus. Let's go this year from an examination of Jesus. I come on Sunday morning and and I learn something that you're teaching to a dedication to Jesus. I learn it and I actually begin to do it. Next week, I I think we're going to have kind of the grand finale of this series and it's going to be unbelievable as we give you a tangible way to say, hey, this year I'm going to be a follower. I'm not just going to be a believer. This year I'm going to be a follower. We're going to take communion together as a church, but we're going to have um, an opportunity for you to come forward and just say, I'm going to follow. I'm going to be a follower this year. More than I've ever been before, I'm going to be a follower. So you don't want to miss next week. It's going to be incredible. But as we look at following Jesus, one of the ways that helps us follow Jesus better, one of the ways that helps us follow Jesus deeper is learning to worship, learning what worship is, learning how worship works, learning how to live life with a spirit of worship. And in John chapter 4, Jesus makes a profound statement about worship that I want you to be aware of because I think maybe the next big step in your Christian life has to do with this area of worship. So here's what John chapter 4 says when we meet Jesus. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered it, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, that's Abraham's grandson, who gave us the well and who drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this well is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give in them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, 
Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, that's a Hebrew word for Savior, called Christ, that's the Greek word for Savior. I know that a Savior is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm him. I, I, I am he. You know, as we meet today, my goal today is to do a couple things. My goal today is to help you understand kind of in a large sense just what a spirit of worship should look like, should feel like, should be like in a church and should be like in your own life. What we can learn about worship from John chapter 4. But I also want to teach you a little bit about the practical outflow of how worship can connect to your heart, connect to your life, connect to your spirit. But worship is difficult to teach on. So I decided instead of teaching you the finer points of worship and what it looks like, I'm going to have an expert in that area come and teach you today. So I want you to meet Professor Tim Hawkins um, as he teaches you how to worship in some of the fundamental areas of that. And then I'll come back and teach on John 4. I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Anybody here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? Some of you are trying, you're like, I can't. I want to, Tim. I need to get some momentum. Totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking. Start slow, hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle, get warmed up, get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready, carry the TV. Carry the TV, that's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen, big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big, my fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there, that's fine, don't worry about it. Jesus loves you, Grace. Next one's hold my baby, hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go, there's your big three. You want to have a good day, just go Google Christian comedian Tim Hawkins. You can watch him all day long. He is awesome. Um, but in John chapter 4, we learned the spirit behind the fun that, that Tim Hawkins was talking about a little bit. Um, and, and I want to teach you a little bit today about 
what Jesus has to say about worship because I believe it's profound and I believe as we follow Jesus, we worship Jesus and I believe the deeper we follow Jesus, the more we worship Jesus. So here's what we learn from John chapter four. Number one, we learn that your spirit of worship is directly connected to your state of mind. Your spirit of worship is directly connected to your state of mind. On a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, your state of mind determines your spirit of worship. If, it, if it's payday, it's a good day. God is good. If it's a nice day outside, it's January, and it's 60 on January 29th and 30th, God is good. That's a, that's a good day. Maybe you find out your wife is pregnant. That's a great day. God is good. That's a good day. Or you get good news. You get a promotion at work. The state of mind determines our spirit of worship. Good state of mind, God is good. But also, state of mind determines our spirit of worship. If it's a bad day, if you lose your job, if it's the final two days before you get paid and, you know, you're stealing your kids' piggy banks and looking under the couch cushions, you're like, man, God doesn't provide enough. Um, you have a bad day at work or the weather's terrible or you find out your wife's pregnant. That one can work like either way, right? That's either like praise God or dear God. Um, you know, you don't know how that works depending on where you are in life. But your state of mind determines your spirit of worship. That, that's easy to think about and say, yeah, that makes sense. But often we separate that from the reality of that connection within church and, and how that looks on a Sunday morning sitting in church. And as we look at the woman in John chapter 4, when it really comes to digging into the state of mind and how we worship God, we see that she does what many people do. She allows her state of mind to get distracted rather than zeroing in on who Jesus is. And here's what we find from her. It's easier to focus on the physical place where Jesus found you rather than the spiritual state that he found you in. It's easy when I say, let's talk about worship, to say, oh, I was raised in this type of church, and oh, I've seen this, and you know, I was raised in this kind of denomination. It's, and it's easy to talk about kind of a physical place or a group of people we were raised with. It's easy to start the conversation about worship in places other than Jesus, and that's what the woman in John chapter 4 wants to look at. She wants to talk about her physical location rather than her spiritual state, which are both really, really bad. But you have to understand just a touch of biblical geography to understand this message. So the Bible said Jesus was in Judea, and he had to go to Galilee. I want to put a map up of you so you can see um, where Judea and Galilee is. This is a map of Israel. Israel's bracketed on the east coast by the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Between them runs the Jordan River. Judea's in the south. You can see it there. Galilee's in the north. Judea would have been filled with Jews in Jesus' day. Galilee would have been filled with Jewish worshiping people in Jesus' day. But kind of between those, Samaria was filled with a group of people who worshipped a lot of different things. Um, they weren't purely Jewish. They were part Jewish, part Syrian, part Jewish, part Babylonian, what, what we would call kind of Iraqi. There were people living in, in Samaria that in today's modern day terms grew up in Syria, grew up in Lebanon, grew up in Iraq, grew up in Iran, um, grew up in Saudi Arabia, grew up in Jordan. They kind of migrated and this was the place they were and they were kind of okay with Jews and they, you know, they did a little bit of Jewish worship but the Jews looked at them and said, you're not us, and you don't love us, and you don't like our land, and you don't like our God. So Jews wouldn't associate with Samaritans. And if you were in Jerusalem, which is just north of Judea there, above Bethlehem, and you had to go to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, you wouldn't even walk through Samaria if you were a devout Jew, because those people hated you and you hated them. Very much like it is today, the turmoil in the Middle East, you wouldn't go. You would actually go to the edge of the Dead Sea, you'd cross over into Perea, you'd head up through the Decapolis. We actually see Jesus preach a lot of his messages there, because that's where Jews normally walked when they were going to Galilee. And then you'd cross back over when you got into Galilee. You just wouldn't go to Samaria. It was the wrong place. This map might show it even a little better. You can kind of see it broken into states here, or districts, or communities. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And the next one would be even better. Jesus didn't just cut through the corner of 
Samaria. He went to the very geographic center of Samaria to sit down at this well to have a conversation with this woman. He was in the wrong place with a woman who was in a really bad state of mind. He runs into a woman who has been divorced five times. Now, in the Israeli culture 2,000 years ago, if you were divorced once, you were kind of blacklisted from society. If you were divorced five times, I mean, you, you almost would never come out of your house. And she had lived through such probably judgment, shame, pain, that she had given up hope of really caring what anyone thought about her. Because she was not only divorced five times, she was living with a guy who wasn't her husband, which basically she was saying to her community, heck with y'all, I, I don't care. You say whatever you want. I don't care about you. You don't care about me. And there was just zero connection to her in the culture that she lived in. The Bible says she was coming to draw water at noon. We know just studying history that all the women of the village would come to draw water every morning and every evening before the sun was hot in the day. The fact that she was drawing water at noon probably meant that group of women said, we don't want you with us. You're going to make us look bad. You're not allowed to be in our group. And they probably ran her off. So here she is. Her marriages, plural, have been busted. Her psyche has just given up. She's now living with a guy in a time when that's not culturally acceptable to do. And and she's isolated. She has no friends. She's basically a broken woman. And here comes Jesus to the wrong place and the wrong person, but at the right time. And some of you, when you look at your life and you think about connecting to Jesus, you feel like her. You say, you know, if you knew all the garbage in my life that Jesus would have to cut through to get to, I don't think Jesus is going to show up at my doorstep. Sure he is. You say, if you knew what I had to leave at home, if you knew a little bit about my past and the way my friends and my family look at me, if you knew about some of my failures, um, you know, I don't think, I, I think if Jesus was here today, I'd be the last person he would want to have a conversation with. Actually, you'd be the first person Jesus would want to have a conversation with. Because Jesus will go anywhere and forgive anything to have a connection and a relationship with you. And we learned that in John chapter 4. Jesus shows up at the place where Jews don't go to speak to a woman that no one else in town will even acknowledge because he wants to see her heart be forgiven, transformed, and made eternal. Jesus will go anywhere to connect with you. Jesus will forgive anything in your past, and he'll look at you in a way no one ever will look at you with absolute love and acceptance because that's who he is and that's what he does. So he goes to the wrong place, he meets with the wrong person who's in the wrong state of mind, and he basically says, I can change your life. I've got the answers that you need, and as he begins to lay out who he is and what he can do, instead of leaning into who he is and connecting deeply with Jesus, she wants to start talking about religion. She wants to start debating theology. And we can't begin our discussion of worship with religion. It doesn't work that way. Religion does not produce worship because worship is a state of mind. Religion doesn't produce worship. So in John chapter 4, Jesus walks up to this woman and gives her enough information that she understands he's special. He gives her enough information to understand this guy's supernatural. He actually makes her a promise that he can give her something that is eternal and will change her life and circumstances forever. And instead of leaning into that and saying, I need that, I want that, help me understand this, she immediately begins to debate religion with him. Look at verses 19 and 20. As Jesus extends to her life, she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. She should stop right there. 
Now, for even those of us who aren't religious people, if we meet someone that we think has the power of a genie to, to grant wishes, if we think we meet someone who has the ability to see through walls, if we meet someone who knows everything about our story and we don't know them, I don't think we would want to debate with them. We'd want to ask them for something. We want to ask them deeper questions in life. Instead, she says, I can tell that you're a prophet. I can tell you're from God. I can tell there's something really special about who you are and what you're offering me. However, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She starts trying to debate religion. She says, you know, I know you're somebody special, but before we dig into what you can do for me, you know, she starts talking about this mountain in Jerusalem. This mountain was the mountain that stood over the well of Sychar where she was. It was Mount Gerizim in the Old Testament, which looked over the city of Shechem. It was an important spiritual place. Shechem was the first place that Abraham, Father Abraham, founder of the three largest world religions, Judaism, uh, Islam and Christianity. Father Abraham, it was the place he built his first altar in the promised land. Um, Shechem was the place when Joseph had gone down to Egypt. For those of you who know a little bit about that biblical story, and Joseph said, make sure they bring me up to the promised land from Egypt. They took his bones from Egypt, and they buried him in Shechem. Shechem was an important place, and Shechem was a place where Jacob, Abraham's grandson, found a spring of water, and he built a well over it and said, we can live here, and we can take care of our flocks and our family here. The mountain was important. Jerusalem was important. She said, we think this mountain's really important spiritually. You guys say Jerusalem's really important spiritually. It was. It was the city of David. It was the location of Solomon's temple. But Jesus cut right through all her questions. Jesus cut right through all her debate. Jesus cut right through talking about what type of church she grew up in or what type of music they sang or what type of expression was right or wrong or over the top. And he said, let's just quit talking about religion. And he drives her to the truth of John 4, verses 23 and 24. And he says, listen, let's quit talking about religion and let's talk about your spirit. Let's talk about your state of mind. And Jesus doesn't even answer her question. He says, a time is coming in verse 23 and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit, and they must worship in truth. He says, you don't understand what God's trying to do. And if you understood it, your heart would begin to change. You see, we have to begin our discussion on worship with rescue not religion. Because unless you believe that God has rescued you from something to something, really you don't have a need or a desire or you don't see him worthy of worshiping. Jesus said, I want to offer you living water, not a location that feels spiritual. I want to offer you something that will change your life. I want to offer you something that will end your isolation. I want to offer you something that can take away your shame. I want to offer you something that allows you to overcome your past. I want to offer you something that's going to allow you to experience deep forgiveness. I want to offer you something that lasts for an eternity. And you can tell her state of mind isn't into being rescued. It's into debating religion because she starts asking religious questions and Jesus says, stop, you're not paying attention. Look at the rescue boat that I am sending to you. And our spirit of worship is determined by our state of mind, but our state of mind is determined by where we see Jesus in our story. So how, how do we know that? It's a very simple question. Did Jesus rescue you? I mean, it's a very simple question. Did Jesus rescue you? Your answer to this question defines your spirit of worship. 
And many people in modern day Christianity say, no, I would not use that word. I would not use that phrase. We have invited Jesus to come alongside us in our journey of life to our destination. And we're glad Jesus is in our life, hanging out with us, moving as we want to move. But we would not say I was headed down the wrong path. I was headed to destruction. I had no answers for myself. I didn't know right from wrong. I didn't know up from down. And Jesus stepped in when everyone else had abandoned me and everything had gone wrong. And he rescued me. You see, when your heart is a heart of rescue, your life will be a life that follows. Dr. John MacArthur, who's one of my favorite Bible scholars on speaking to the language, the original Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek. He's a Greek scholar who helps define words in the English language. And he says, when Jesus speaks to worship in spirit, the word spirit doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit, but to the human spirit. Jesus' point here is that a person must worship with the proper heart attitude. You can't worship unless you feel like Jesus has done something radical in your life and he's brought a spirit of rescue to you. So he says you're five times divorced. You're in an unhealthy relationship. I can help you. You're all alone and clearly you have no friends or even acquaintances. I can help you. You're living in the shadows because you're ashamed of your life and what you've done and you've given up hope of even trying to get into normal civilization. I can help you with that. You know a little bit about religion, but it hasn't done anything to bring peace to your heart and eternity to your future. I can help you with that. I'm offering you eternal life and fulfilling life. And she says, I will do anything for that. I know when the Messiah comes, he'll tell me. He said, that's me. And she said, okay, tell me. And she's willing to follow. You see, when you have a spirit of rescue, it's much easier to follow when you believe that you're lost than when you have your own ideas of how to get there. Ladies, have you ever been with your husbands when you know for sure he is lost, but he won't ask directions because he thinks if he just waits long enough, he'll find his way there? I can't tell you how many cars Jesus drives in the passenger seat of waiting for us to finally say, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what to do in my marriage. I'm lost, rescue me. I don't know what to do with my finances. I'm lost, rescue me. I don't know what to do at my job. I'm lost, rescue me. I don't know what to do with my kids. I'm lost, rescue me. I don't know how to overcome my addictions or the habits that cause me so much damage. I just need help. Rescue me. Her marriage hadn't worked out. The friend thing hadn't worked out. Arguing about religious things hadn't worked out. She needed help. She needed to be rescued. And Jesus said, I can rescue her. And she followed. You know, you'll follow someone who you believe is worthy to lead you. And if you believe Jesus has rescued you, you'll follow him. Do you know the word worship? The, the root of the word worship is the word worth. It literally means worthy. You follow Jesus because you believe he's worthy to be followed because of what he's done in your life. And she finally got to the point where she said, okay, I understand what you're saying. State of mind determines my spirit of worship. I need help. You can help me. What do I do? And then Jesus begins to, to give some interesting truth. And here's what we learned secondly. We learned that your outpouring of worship will never exceed your understanding of spiritual truth. I mean, even when your spirit is a spirit of rescue, even when your state of mind is a state of mind that Jesus is worthy, and if he'll tell me anything, I'll follow, we have to understand still the outpouring, the connection in our spirit to worship will never exceed our understanding to spiritual truth. The woman in John chapter 4 knew for sure that when she found the truth, 
she would understand where and how to worship. She even said in John chapter 4 to, to Jesus when, when he said, you know, you don't understand what you're talking about. I'm offering you a rescue boat. Will you take it? She basically said, if I could ever find the Messiah, take it. She said this in verses 25 and 26 of John 4. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, we would say Savior, is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything. And Jesus said, that's me. She, she basically said what all of us say. I know one day someone will help me figure it all out. Everyone in this room, regardless of where you are spiritually, has just got this thing deep down that says, one day all the puzzle pieces will fit, will fit together. And maybe you're here because you're trying to figure out if Jesus is that way. With people every Sunday who come to our church who are not Christians, there are, I'm sure, several people here today who are not Christians. We're really glad you're here. I hope you feel welcome and keep coming back. We want, our, we want to have people in our church who aren't Christians trying to figure out what this is. Because I believe everyone in our communities is saying what this woman says. I know one day it'll all make sense. Somebody will explain it to me. On this day, Jesus said, that's me. I can do that. I can help you fit the pieces together that have not fit together yet if you'll follow. But there was an understanding of who Jesus was that she had to have first. And when you and I really begin to understand Jesus and the heart of God, we begin to understand the importance of worship. And there's a few truths that I need you to understand as our church and as Christians in this community and this world that are really important biblically. There's some truths that shape our outpouring of worship. Do you know that it should be important to us that God delights in the corporate worship of his people? That, that's a truth you need to understand. It should be important to you that God delights in the corporate worship of his people. You say, what is, what's corporate worship means? It means a group of people worshiping together. God says in scripture, I like that. Actually, he says more than that in Scripture. In Psalm 22, 3, the psalmist says to God, you are holy and you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. The old King James Version says that God inhabits the praises of his people. Here's the picture, though, that the New Living Translation gives us a little better. The Bible says that when a group of people worship together, something spiritually happens. The result of a group of people worshiping together it builds a spiritual throne over them that God settles into. God says, when a group of people get together and they worship together, I come and sit down in the midst of them. Wow, that's cool. So like when a group of people come together and they begin worshiping, God doesn't just like move in and out. God says, when the people of God come together and they worship together corporately, I come and sit down right in the midst of them. It's why corporate worship has to be important to us. The one thing we have found out from a lot of the people who have come to our church from a, for a long time, people who came to our church who weren't Christians, and then people who came to our church and later became Christians, and even those who came in and out of our church, but they didn't make a commitment to Jesus, they all talked about the strange attraction that they had to worship. They said, you know, I come to your church, and, you know, the teaching is great, and I'm learning things, and, you know, pe some people like music. They like a little louder, faster music like ours. They're like, the music is great. But they say, you know, I, I watch the people who, they don't even know what to call it, who close their eyes, who raise their hands. And I realize, um, I don't know everything going on, but I realize something's going on with them that's not going on with me at that moment. That's what people who are far from God are telling us. When I come into a church and I watch people worship, I realize something's happening with them that's not happening with me, and I'm interested in that. They have questions about why some people appear to feel 
what's being sung about when they're just hearing it. And I believe corporate worship is one of the greatest testimonies the church can have to people who don't know Jesus because it shows something's happening here. I have a, a friend who just planted a church in Boston. He and his launch team came to our church last year to kind of see how we did things before they launched their church. They're just a few months old now. Um, but Pastor Chris, who pastors the church, we were at an event in Atlanta f- a few weeks ago, and he was talking to church planners, and he said, you know, the vast majority of people who come to our church are not Christians. They've not, been, they've not grown up in church. They don't know anything about church. Um, but he said a lot of them are real highly educated, and they just like to learn new things about new things. So they're coming to our church. And he said, we had a guy who's been coming to our church for six or seven weeks who several weeks ago approached one of the people who leads worship on our stage. And he took time after service to go see her, and he introduced himself, and he said, I just want you to know, I don't believe what you believe. I've been coming and learning about it, but I don't believe yet what you believe. But I hope if I ever choose to believe it, my life looks like how you believe it. Because I can tell when I watch you sing, do you believe it? See, I believe worship is a key part of the world seeing that Jesus is here, not just here. So if corporate worship is important to Jesus, shouldn't it be important to us? How do we make corporate worship important to us? You know, one of the greatest things you can do is just be on time to church. You know, and I, and I, don't, I, don't, mean to, I don't mean to smack your hands, but some of you, like literally, you think, okay, church starts at 1045, but if we're there by 11, we'll catch everything you might miss the thing that's most important to God. You know who's actually on time to church? Because I, 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 I'm in the auditorium talking to people. Guests are on time. First time guests are on time to church because they don't know yet that they're supposed to be late. Like, you know, it's like they think, they think everyone comes on time. So they get here and they're like, where is everyone? And you know, we, we know who the new people are. It's like, yeah, they're the only people here. And it's like, hey, thanks for coming. Everybody else will be here in about 20 minutes. So um, just enjoy the singing. You can have a mic if you want. You know, we started like the 9 a.m. service and Danielle's been like, you know, stand. We're so glad you're both here. And like, you know, we just like start singing. It's like, where is everyone? And it's like corporate worship clearly is not as important to our people as it is to our God if they're not ready and raring to go. Have you ever been to an NFL game that starts at 12.07 or a Major League Baseball game that starts at 1.10? Could you imagine the first batter knowing the game's starting at 1.10, knowing that first pitch is going to be thrown, saying, uh, I'll be there about 1.17, 1.18? It doesn't work because there are some things that are important to be on time for. And God says, let me tell you what happens. When people worship together, I come and sit down right in their midst. So corporate worship, it's important to be on time. It's important to be engaged, whatever, whatever that looks like for you and how your spirit works. It's important to participate. Maybe that's humming for you. Maybe it's singing out loud. Maybe it's a little more expressive. But it's important. If God says it's important, then it's got to be important to all of us. But corporate singing doesn't really become worship until truth is grasped. Because worship is a state of mind. Worship is an understanding So what I've learned about real worship happening is when spiritual reality meets spiritual rescue, the result is worship. You say, what what does that mean? Spiritual reality means spiritual rescue. It means this, when you sing something that's true of your life spiritually and that connects, the result is your, your spirit begins to 
worship. Here's a spiritual reality that, that just went from words on a screen to actually being true of my life and how I feel. And the result is Jesus is magnified just a little deeper in our soul. Moments of gratitude come out of worship. Moments of awe come out of worship. Moments of thanksgiving come out of worship. Moments of praise come out of worship. Moments of brokenness are revealed in worship. Moments of rescue are realized in worship. Moments of value are found in worship. In, in God being worthy, all those things are found in worship. So I sometimes, as a pastor of this church, I even struggle. When we sing new songs that I don't know, I struggle to worship. Because I don't worship the music. I don't worship the beat of the drum. I don't worship the guitar solos, even though all those are awesome. I worship the spiritual realities that I'm learning. So as I sit on the front row and they're singing a new song, I'm trying to, say, I'm trying to see which of these words applies to my life. Which of these things does my spirit agree with? Which phrase of this song grabs me and leads me to a deeper relationship with Jesus. So I have to hear a new song several times before I can even realize which parts of it apply to me. I'm so glad our creative arts team this week went and put on the Journey Church Facebook page our Spotify playlist of our worship music. More than two hours of the worship music that we sing here every Sunday morning is right now on our Journey Church Facebook page so you can go and download it and begin to listen to it because some of your hearts will never connect to worship until you even know what the words mean. So you need to begin to listen to it and figure out what it is and throw it right on your phone. Because when spiritual reality meets spiritual rescue, the result is worship. Some of my favorite songs at this church are those that have resulted, the spiritual reality of them has resulted in worship. We sing a song here called Oceans that for months I struggled to sing because we started singing this song about nine months before we moved into our building project. And there's a line in this song that was scary for me spiritually. There's a line in the song that says, take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. It's the spiritual reality of God. I want you to call me to some place where I'm totally vulnerable. And if you don't come through, we're going to fail. And they would put that song on the screen and they would sing it. And I would stand and for months I couldn't even sing. I would just look at that phrase and think, Lord, I don't know that I could go there. And as I felt God saying, go, go, go to where you're vulnerable, the result was I would worship and say, okay, God, take me where I'm vulnerable, but please don't let me go there. There was a spirit of worship as the knowledge of the spiritual reality met the knowledge of the rescue that I needed. There's a song we sing called Great Are You, Lord, that for me represents thanksgiving because it's the thought we sang it last week that the breath that we have in our lungs God gave to us, and it's the only thing that separates us from a dead man. One of the things you do as a pastor is funerals, and I've done dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens, probably more than a 100 funerals the last 15 years of ministry. I stood by so many caskets. I know the names personally of so many funeral home directors. I know their wife. I know their kids. They know my wife and kids because we've gone through that process so many times together. And the only thing that separates a corpse and a casket from the person standing beside it preaching is the breath in your lungs. And when I sing, Lord, it's the breath in my lungs that keeps me alive. The only reason I'm alive is because of the breath in my lungs right now. I'm grateful for that breath in my lungs. And I want to use that breath in my lungs to say thank you to who Jesus is. We sing a song called Our Great God. 
And man, when we sing this on weeks where I need help, I don't know if you ever come to church on Sunday and you don't want to face something on Monday or you don't want to face what's coming down on Thursday or you don't want to face what's coming down on Friday. When we're in church and we're singing this song, Our Great God, and I'm thinking, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get through Monday and we sing this, sign, this song, You Go Before Us. I'm, I'm thinking, God, I don't want to go to Monday, but you're already there. God, you are a great God and you go before us. And I don't know what's going to happen Thursday, but you're already there. And I begin to bear witness in my soul, the spirit spiritual reality that I need help this week, but God is already there waiting to help me. That stirs me to want to worship. There's a song we sang this morning called One Thing Remains that reminds me of my brokenness. When we sing this line, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. I have to worship out of the brokenness of my life because the only thing that allows me to get on this stage on a Sunday after I have failed Monday through the previous Saturday and I know I'll fail tomorrow through the next Saturday is that God's love never fails. It never gives up and it has not run out on me. So when I hear that, I think, thank you, God, that I get another chance to do it one more time. And then I don't know if any of you grew up in old, you know, kind of old school churches that sang hymns. I grew up in churches where the hymns were sung. Were any of you grow up in like hymn churches? I love hymn churches. I can tell the people who grew up in hymn churches because all they're doing is this. It's like that's all they're allowed to do in church. You know, they're like, yeah, me. No, no, no. Hymn church was like, yes, I did grow up in a hymn church. It's like, okay, thank you. I'm glad you grew up in a hymn church. The theology of the hymns, oh my goodness, pulls your spirit to another level spiritually. One of my favorite hymns is the, song, is the hymn, It Is Well. And as the fourth verse of it as well starts, Horatio Spafford, who wrote that great song, says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. When I hear that, my sin, oh, the bliss, and you should put your hands together that our sin is forgiven, because here's what he's saying. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not just one of my sins, but all of my sins are gone. When I think about that, it's like, yes, praise the Lord. All of them are gone. And the ones I'll commit next week, they're gone. And the screw-ups that I'll have next year, they're gone. Thank you, Jesus, that they're all gone. See, when spiritual reality meets a spirit that needs to be rescued, the result is worship. The result is thank you, Jesus. And that's what we're talking about here. It is village people, rocky, touchdown, whatever you want to call it. It is celebration of who God is and what God has done. And Jesus said, God's looking for people who worship differently. I don't care about what type of church you grew up in. I'm not asking what kind of music you like or what songs bear witness with your soul. I'm talking about spirit and truth coming together because people who really worship God, that's how it comes together and that's how it works. But worship has always got to be a response. It should never become a routine. It's not a dance. I come in here and I raise my hands and I tap my foot. No, it's not a routine. We're not teaching routines. We're responding to who God is in our life and who God is in our past and who God is in our future and who God is in our family's life. Worship is a response. And when it's corporate, it's beautiful. But there's another truth. It should be important to us that God delights in personal worship of his people too. I mean, God says when the people of God corporately worship together, it builds this chair so I can come in and I can sit in their midst. But when somebody worships privately and personally, God says, I will come not sit on the throne that the church has prepared for me. But Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I'll come sit down in your heart. If you'll open up your heart for personal worship, I'll come sit down in here and we'll hang out. And I hear a lot of people that say, man, you know, Christian, for me, worship is kind of a private thing. 
It's kind of a personal thing. You know, I don't really like to, don't really like to show it. Let me ask you a question. Is worship for you or for God? What if you would tell your kids, you know, I love you, but my love for you is kind of, it's private. It's personal. I don't really want to talk about it. I don't really want to show it. I don't want to tell anybody, but I love you deeply. This is real private. Try that on Valentine's Day, guys, in two weeks. <laughs> Babe, it's Valentine's Day, but my, my love for you is private. So I just want you to know. It's not going to work. Psalm 150, the psalmist says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Does this sound like a personal, private thing to you? Or is the psalmist saying, praise the Lord? Worship who is worthy. You see, we want worship at our church on Sunday to be a priority. We'll know when that happens when people are here and they get that. We want it to be an activity, something participated in, not just something observed. Why? Because we want a life of worship in the outflow of worship to be present in your life now because it's going to be an eternity. Everything we do in Christianity is just a test run for eternity. And do you know in eternity, whether you're private or public, you're going to worship. You're going to sing. You're going to sing out loud. And you're going to praise the God of the heaven. You say, Christian, how do you know that? Because the Bible in Revelation gives us a glimpse of the eternal future. And John says, when I saw heaven, here's what it looked like. And guess what? If you're a Christian, he saw you there. And guess what you were doing? You were singing. You were worshiping. I'm going to ask our band to come up because we're going to close today by rehearsing for the eternal choir that one day we'll be a part of. But here's what Revelation 5 says. John, who's in heaven, seeing a glimpse of the future eternity, says, And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. That includes you and me saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, one day in heaven you're going to worship if you're a Christian. One day you're going to pursue Jesus. You may not even realize how much he's rescued you now, but you will then. And when the spiritual reality meets spiritual rescue, the result is going to be worship. And guess what? In, in, in heaven, worship you're going to see is participatory, participatory, not just observed. You will not have a cup of coffee in heaven listening to 10,000 times 10,000 and say, that's a, that's a good song right there while you drink your coffee. No, you're going to put your coffee down. You're going to worship. You're going to worship the God who created you and loved you and walked where no one else would get to to be with you and forgave what no one else would forgive to be close to you. That's the God who has rescued us and wants to be close to you and deserves our praise and deserves our worship. So it's my goal to prepare you for eternity. One day I believe you're going to walk in the gates of heaven and you're going to hear this song and I want you to think, wait a minute, I know that one. I know we sang that one at church and you're going to race to the choir and you're going to sing. I don't want you to walk in and think, I don't think I know the words to this. No, 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 no. We practice this one. We know in eternity we're going to sing this song in Revelation 5. So why don't we close today by singing it now? Would you stand with me?